Hello, I'm Chris Biddle and welcome to Inside AgriTurf, a series of podcasts in which I will be talking to those at the heart of the farm and grass machinery industry. Welcome to episode four of Inside AgriTurf. As my guest this week, I'm delighted to welcome David Withers. From his role as a demonstrator for Charterhouse Turf Machinery, David joined Jacobson UK in 1997, the Textron-owned distributor based in Kettering, who had also recently taken over the UK distributorship of Iziki from Ransoms. In a quirk of fate, a year later in 1998, Textron bought Ransoms, thus not only putting together two leading turf care machinery brands, but also Iziki. David joined the management team of the now combined Ransoms Jacobson operation based in Ipswich and gradually worked his way up the ladder, becoming managing director in 2004. In 2011, he received the exciting invitation from the Textron Group to take up the post of President of Jacobson Worldwide Operation based in Charlotte, North Carolina. This was not only a recognition of his stewardship of Ransoms Jacobson in the UK, but it was also satisfying to know that someone from over here was able to make it good over there. It was a role he was to hold until 2017 when a reorganisation of Textron brands would have meant relocating from Charlotte, which resulted in him making the decision to return to the UK. Initially without an immediate plan, he was soon presented with the opportunity to take on the UK distributorship of Iziki once again. In 2018, he established Iziki UK in a former Royal Mail sorting office on the Ransoms Europark in Ipswich, just yards from where he had spent much of his earlier career. And not only that, in this pandemic age, he has returned to being a demonstrator, producing working product videos of the Iziki range using his wife and family as camera crew. So when he is tempted to observe, what goes round goes round. So David, do you ever stop and reflect on the curiosities and coincidences that seem to crop up quite regularly in this industry of ours? Yes, it's funny, isn't it? Uh, I think for a lot of us, once we're in this industry, it grabs us. So we end up in a situation where if you're going to stay in the industry for your entire career, you're probably going to work for a few different companies, but there's going to be a lot of crossovers, a lot of uh, relived experiences again. Uh, and a lot of things that do feel like coincidences or, or, or kind of weird things that have happened that we all end up back where we are again kind of thing. So, yes, I, I think I do reflect on that. And it, it's, it's funny, particularly for me here, I think, you know, when I left Charterhouse, I went to Jacobson uh, in Kettering, which was a small operation uh, with about 15 employees uh, in, a, in a warehouse unit. Very, very similar to what yeah, I Yeah, I remember going there. Yeah. Um, and uh, so it does feel like you've almost come back full circle. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and just remind me, um, Jacobson taken on Nazeki. Uh, where did that? When did the relationship with Ransoms, Jacobson, and Nazeki end? When did that change? Yeah. So uh, Jacobson, this was pre the Textron acquisition of Ransoms, uh, took the Nazeki franchise from Massey Ferguson in the mid nineties. Um, and then, obviously, when Textron acquired Ransoms at the end of 97, early 98, 
uh, we put the two companies together. At the time, Ransom's actually had a relationship with Shibora. That's right. And uh, uh, there was a discussion as to which one of these tractor franchises we should stick with. And uh, we decided to stick with the Izeki franchise, um, which I think was the right decision. And then uh, Ransom's Jacobson, as it was then from 2008 onwards, no, sorry, 98 onwards, then uh, had Izeki through till the end of 2017. And then Izeki UK started uh, January 1, 2018. Are you, um, are you a wholly owned subsidiary of Izeki or an independent company? No, no, it's, uh, it's partly owned by me and partly owned by Izeki. And, and, and going back to selling the Izeki brand is, I mean, you're familiar with it from the olden days, as we yeah. old people say. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've had a relationship with Izeki right the way back to when Jacobson pitched for the business. We, you know, I was part of the team that kind of pitched for the business uh, to, to get that uh, when Massey Ferguson had it. So, uh, yeah, I've known all those guys back from then. And, you know, one of the things that has always been the case with the Izeki product is stunningly reliable product. And, and that's always just been a great joy um, that it's, it's been a, such a good, good, good product to, over the years. And certainly from my point of view, I thought it was a good brand. Um, and I thought that, you know, when they wanted to have more control of the distribution, which is kind of what led to the split with uh, Ransom's Jacobson, that um, we could do that, you know, that, that by focusing on what was best for the Izeki brand in terms of distribution, marketing, and all the other communication bits that go with that, rather than Izeki being one of a stable of brands where really distribution decisions were made on what was best for the stable of brands, not for each individual brand. And uh, there's no doubt that by, by splitting it away and having it as an independent company has meant that we've been able to make decisions that are just the best for Izeki, not necessarily the best for this whole stable of brands that was the case uh, when we were at RJ. Would you say that your alliance lies more with grounds care dealers or ag dealers, or is it a combination of both? Yeah, we've got both. I'd say we're predominantly, but if I say that we sell probably 80% of our machines go out on turf tyres rather than ag tyres, which is a kind of how I look at it crudely, um, as to, you know, I look at the tractors as they go out and see what tyres they've got on them. And, uh, and I think that's probably reflective of our dealer network. We probably are 80% turf people and 20% ag people. Yeah. Um, in Japan, I know that um, Izeki are also involved in the agricultural market um, and you would resist that. I mean, others are taking a different route and starting from the turf market, shall we say, and moving up into the agricultural market. Um, do you see Izeki really continuing to focus mainly on, on, on turf and grass cutting? Yes. Uh, so, certainly for, from, from where I am uh, and my guidance for this territory is we have, we have a lovely niche that we fit into. We come in below the big ag boys and they tolerate our presence in the distribution. We come above all of the garden guys. And so there's no real, you know, so again, let's say they tolerate our, you know, being in their distribution. Once you start expanding either up or down from that, you end up where, where your distribution is now in tension. And instead of it being a kind of a win-win where you're working with the dealer, now you get into this situation. So, well, if you don't sell my agricultural tractors, then you can't do whatever. Well, yeah. then I'm going to go head to head with the big ag guys. I'm going to lose that battle. 
So why would I want to put myself into that space? So you, so you uh, see, and, yeah. So you see, Azeki uh, is remaining very much as a niche product with specific qualities, a grass collection being one, uh, and and so on, and really not deviating from that much, David. I think that's correct. Yeah, I think sub hundred horsepower. I mean, we're you know seventy-ish horsepower is our biggest one at the minute. You could imagine going a little bit bigger, but but not 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 moving up into the proper ag full uh, tracks. And, and the other thing is. You know, you've got to look at what the markets are like and the competitive space that you're going to be playing in. Uh, and when you look at that ag space, you know, I mean, how many ag tractors are there? How many players are there? And how many more are coming in as the Indians and the Chinese and the Koreans and all that sort of expand? I just don't think there's any money to be made in that space because it's so competitive. And, and again, Izeki do have an offering going down into the petrol ride-on range. We don't bring that in because, again... How many petrol ride-on collecting mowers are there? I mean, yeah, you, you know, and so and so the margins that could be made, the money that can be made in that space is so limited by by the competition. Whereas, you know, you move in, you look at where we are, which is the diesel collecting professional, you know, upper end of the homeowner, you know, space. There's, there's three or four players as opposed to thirty or forty players. Do you do you tend to align yourself with any other major franchises? I mean, are you a natural fit with any of the the, the, the big ag boys? No, I don't think we are. I mean, I think just because of our history, we've got a lot of big ransoms dealers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the Doe's, Sharks, you know, those kind of guys, Whites and so on. So obviously we still have very close relationships with those people. But we have New Holland dealers who, who sell our stuff. We have Case dealers. We have Massey Ferguson dealers. We have... You know, we're not really aligned as such. I guess, you know, we're not going to be in a John Deere house. We're not going to be in a Kubota house. Yeah. Uh, but other than those two. And obviously you do get uh, aided and abetted by the churn in, in, in franchises and distributorship. I mean, Rustons were very active uh, uh, until a few years ago and with a particular brand of, uh, of, of compact tractors. I mean, do you, do you gain from those sort of events? I guess you do. Well, I think so. I think going back to our strategy that I mentioned earlier of, of, of knowing what you're good at and kind of staying there, some of our colleagues in other companies have not taken the same view. And obviously that's led to disruption in their distribution. Um, you know, if you're going to become an ag player, you want your dealers to sell ag. And, and if they're already established with other ag outfits, they've got to make a decision. Do they you know, what are, what are they going to do? They've got to jump one way or the other. And uh, that's a tough decision for people to make. And it does lead to disruption and churn. And we all know in this industry that people like to buy off people they know and trust. And every Absolutely. time you change a dealer, you go backwards. Yeah. Because, you know, you, you're now starting from scratch again. And you've got to build up that trust. You've got to build up that relationship. And um, so, yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of churn for ourselves, but when it happens to others, it certainly gives us an opportunity. And, and you mentioned about dealers. Um, it's often been said that dealers um, sell what they want to sell uh, to, to, to manufacturers, and 
you get lots of cases where one day they're selling a green tractor and then the next day they're selling a red tractor and and how does this happen it happens with you of course i mean you you take over franchises from similar comp- competitors um how, how do you find the customers do the customers generally stick with the dealer is it in other words i guess what i'm trying to say what's more important the uh the the, the color of the product or the uh, or the dealer himself the age-old question eh? so i mean i've always said that a good dealer can sell a bad product and a bad dealer can't even sell a good product a lot of it is down to the dealer i, I don't think we can kid ourselves that the dealer isn't vitally important. I still believe that that relationship between the dealer, particularly the dealer sales guy, uh, salesperson, and the customer is pivotal in decision-making. People buy off people they like and know and trust. However, you can make it a lot easier or harder for those sales guys to win. And, And that's where it comes down to the branding, the backup, the support, all the rest of it, the quality of the machinery, the performance, all the rest of it that goes into that space. Are you, in essence, an an advantaged salesperson utilizing and leveraging your relationships? Or are you an under-supported, under-helped sales guy who's got to overcome a lot of barriers to leverage his relationships? And so I do think it's both. I, I honestly think it's both. You've got to have... To really be successful, to take share, to grow, to make money, to be you know, to really be a successful player in this business, you need good, focused, happy dealers. You need a good product. There is such a thing, is there? Happy dealers? Well, actually, we just did a dealer <laughs> survey about a month ago, and I'd say, yes, we have Excellent. <laughs> broadly very happy dealers. Oh, that, that's great. But, but you must have found the, uh, the challenge of brand identification particularly marked when you were with Ransoms Jacobson, because there you had what, one quintessential heritage British brand against one quintessential uh, heritage American brand. What were your lessons from that? So it's this whole branded house versus house of brands and all this kind of stuff that you hear you hear talked about. And we went down the idea of having a house of brands. You know, we were going to maintain the brand of Ransoms, maintain the brand of Jacobson, but then we had Easy Go, Cushman, you know, Ryan, blah, 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 umpteen brands. But the biggest issue with it, Chris, is lack of focus and the cost. The cost of each brand is significant. If you're going to do it properly, you need dedicated resources in terms of marketing, website, communications, and so on for each brand for it really to be successful. And, and generally speaking, it's difficult to justify. There's mixed messaging then. Relatively small. Mixed messaging then, is it? Absolutely, yeah. And it's one of the things that's been a, a joy here is you just sling Izeki <laughs> up on the wall, that's it, everything's blue. Everything's you see what you get. Absolutely. And it, it does make it a lot, a lot easier. I, I remember one of our competitors back in the day when at the time, this was pre-Ransoms, we were selling Jacobson, Gravely, Izeki, Smithco, Turfco, yeah. maybe a couple of other, other brands Brower. as well as Jacobson. <laughs> and I remember one of our competitors coming up at our stand at, at Harrogate and saying, you know, look, you look like you're running a sweetie store, you know, because there's just all these different colours. Yeah. And uh, it is hard to get that whole brand identity there where you've got so many brands that you're trying to protect. Yeah, and and and, and putting, a bra- putting a brand on a product, I well remember a, uh, and this, would you believe it, predates you, you David, um, when Ransoms did the deal with Hahn, 
um, which I think was a tournament triplex, which is they, yeah. where they kind of got into fine cutting. And one of the products that they ran and gave to Ransom's dealer, because I was a Ransom's dealer at the time, was a Han 22-inch walk-behind steel deck mower. But it had Ransom's on it. And it was the biggest load of junk you've ever seen. It was totally unsuited to the UK market. But because it had Ransom's on it, people were saying, oh, it's a Ransom's. Uh, so so where, are the diff- where are the challenges there? Well, I think the problem with that is you can do that once or twice because you're we just... We only did it once. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you, what you're doing is you're spending your brand equity yeah. is what you're doing there. You've, you've spent all this time, money, effort, engineering, all the rest of it, building brand equity. When you then start using it to badge junk, people will buy it for a bit, but after a while, actually, I think it devalues the brand overall. And you can see it in some of the clothing places. I mean... You, you know, just to use another example, you, you remember Ralph Lauren was a real high-end brand yeah. 25 years ago, you know, and, and you you spend $200 or whatever on, on, on a shirt. They're now all 20 bucks and blah, blah, blah. And, and that's MTK what they call, Max, they call yeah. that mass market, so on. But, but it's, it's devalued the brand, hasn't it? And, um, yeah. And you've got to be there, careful not to do that. There's a certain uh, manufacturer of construction equipment in this country that um, offers their brand to all sorts of products, which are not, I would argue, up to the standard to which they manufacture their their core product. Yeah. And then you start to get into this whole, oh, well, it's an X brand, but it's not really an X brand. You know, and now people are differentiating in their minds between that's a real one of those and that's a, uh, it's not really one of those. Uh, um, and then surely you're confusing your whole brand message you are indeed uh, but presumably david there are sort of two types of customers so there are those that are completely wedded to a brand i mean if you take the arb market there are husky fans and there are still fans and, and you might never change them because that's what they buy other customers of course go to their dealer they say well you're the expert what do you recommend and they'll deal with sell them i mean is that still true in the let's say the professional turf care market the golf market broadly i think people are committed to one color but not completely so so you know it sounds like i contradicted myself there but i'd say they have a bias to a color but in certain instances, if there is a machine that's really obviously better in another color or there's a problem with their dealer in that local area or whatever it happens to be, then they will consider other options. But there are definitely people there who have a bias towards a particular color. And as long as they've got a decent dealer, nobody does anything stupid. Everything seems to be OK. They will stick with that. You're really, I mean, there were customers, you know, I remember back in the day when I was at Jake, we'd look at who were maybe Toro or John Deere uh, houses, and we knew we were waiting for them to make a mistake. You know, there was no way we were going to win that business. It would have to come from them making a mistake to open the door for us. In the event they didn't make a mistake, they'd be polite, they'd be open to talk to us and all the rest of it, but we knew we were never going to win that business. And whilst we're on dealers, I mean, how are you looking at the uh, state of the dealer trade uh, at the moment? You, you, you indicated there was a certain amount of positivity amongst them at the moment. Being a dealer these days is not for the faint-hearted, um, particularly if you sell, oh, let's name a brand, John Deere. To be a John Deere dealer is certainly not for the fan- financially faint-hearted, wholehearted commitment in every way you can think of. Um, we're seeing a trend, not so much here in the UK, but uh, in the States, of dealers being purchased by 
um, e private equity companies. Um, and indeed, from manufacturers, I see Resync um, have bought some dealerships in Canada. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, do, do, do you think that they will, this will proliferate because of the costs involved in, in stocking and simply maintaining a, a, a major brand these days? Mm. I, I do think you're going to see a split between big corporate dealers, let's put it that way, Yeah. and then I think it's the middle guys who are going to lose out in all of this. I think the really little guys are going to be okay. I think you're going to end up with massive dealers who are maybe family owned, but maybe, you know, corporate, you know, a bit like the car dealerships. If you look at that, I mean, you think of people like Lookers and all the other guys who got into owning umpteen car dealerships, you could easily yeah. see yeah. that happening. But I can see that being the upper end of the dealer network with, with, with big major brands. And then I can see a kind of a gap developing in the middle. And then you go down to the little guys. Uh, who have got really low overhead, keep it tight, relatively small customer base, but very loyal customer base to them. And I think they'll survive happily as well because they are, you know, they're not weighed down with that huge stock burden and all of the other um, stuff that you get from the big, big franchises. You know, I mean, it's like the Land Rover dealerships, you know, I mean, they walk in, they tell you what you got to do, it's going to cost you 10 million quid. And you've yeah. got to do it, otherwise you lose franchise. That's it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you've got to have their cha chairs and tables and goodness knows, yeah. no, knows what. It's coming, you know, you can see the, the upper end of the ag guys and, the, you know, the, particularly the big long liners. Yeah. Um, where they, they have that kind of power over their dealers to make them do that. But there's a lot of cost involved in that. Yeah. yeah. And so therefore you need huge territories to, to justify the, the, you know, the low margins and high costs. Well, the UK is only a small country, obviously, but I think even in the UK, there's a, there's a differential between the, the, the trade, if you like, in the eastern part of the country, where you've got big food producers and, and, and farming who probably buy their equipment as a commodity with less reliance on dealer support than the western part of the country, the West Country, Wales, and so on and so forth, where there's much stronger dealer connection between them and, and the and the customers but did, what, what did you find from your time in the states obviously it's a huge market huge regional differences if you had to compare the american dealer trade with the u.s deal i'm sorry in the uk dealer trade um are there any fundamental differences i mean a lot of them were based on old mom and pop stores but uh, uh, they've obviously gone out to see it, and there's a lot of multi-branch dealerships over there but but what was your experiences from over there so I think it does come down to the whole cultural differences that there are. I mean, I would say, generally speaking, the American economy is very quarter-based. What do you do in this quarter? What do you do in this quarter? What do you do in this quarter? More, more than over here. We might talk that we do that, but we don't really, not in the same way. It's ingrained in America, right the way down even to a mom-and-pop dealership. That they're, they're, they're like that. And, and I think the other difference there is there's a bias for change, if I can put it that way. So all other things being equal, it's a 50-50 toss-up between do we carry on doing what we're doing or do we change? I think in the UK, we'd carry on doing what we're doing. In the US, they'd change. That is it, is it change for change state, sake in the States? I, 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 I would just call it a bias for change. I would say that, that all other things being equal, They'd rather change something than leave it as it is. Yeah, 
So, so I mean, I had an interesting conversation with a with a dealer over there, and, and funnily enough, this is when I was kind of shuttling back and forth quite a lot. And um, which you wouldn't dealer, do now. <laughs> no, no, I'm glad I'm not trying to now. Um, I had a conversation with the dealer over there. You know, so, so, so well, how's things going? What's you know, how's your business? And he was immediately, well, we're 1.2% up on our quarter last year, and the return on investment is X, and da 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 da. The following week, I was with one of my European distributors, actually. And I said, well, how's your business? How do you see the future? Said, well, I start to bring my son into the business now, and as I look forward to the next 20 years, we're going to be doing. And there, there was a difference in emphasis there between a. And it all comes down to that driven by the stock market, driven by the quarters, driven by that that everybody is so focused on performance, performance, performance. Now, you know, how are we going to do it now? Whereas I think there is a more longer-term view in, in some of the dealerships and, and, and business generally. And uh, did, you find, did you find that it, within, your, uh, within Ransoms Jacobson, the, the, the culture between uh, the head office, if you like, in, in um, Charlotte or, and also in, in Ipswich, although it was American-owned, of course, uh, were the attitudes of the, of, the, of the people working there slightly different? Yeah, I think so. I think what I just said would be true about, you know, that um, in the American head office, it, there would be this bias for change and perhaps in the UK office, there'd be a bias for status quo. I think the other thing you really notice, uh, and again, you don't, this is something you only really learn over time when, when, you're, when you're working somewhere like that. And that is, it is hugely different, the protection of employees and what that does to their attitudes. Uh, and I always used to t tell the story that over here, my, my uh, executive assistant, Dawn, who used to look after me yeah. when I was in the UK, you, you know, yes. you know, somebody would be calling or want to talk to me and I'd say, well, just tell them that, you know, I don't want to talk to them. Just, just tell them to bugger off, or, you know, whatever. <laughs> Dawn would then write a beautifully worded letter to them expressing, you know, that I was unfortunately tied up and it was as soon as I was free, I would definitely be to, I said the same thing in America and literally virtually said, well, no, I'm sorry, David doesn't want to see it. Just go away. <laughs> Much because more blunt. This, well, it's, it's the, I'm going to do what the boss told me to do, as opposed to, I'm going to interpret what the boss told me to do and do what I think is right within that general parameter. And I think over here, because people aren't worried that you're going to get shot, that, you know, that you, no, fine, you're fired, out which is the American way, yeah. they're much more um, open, if you like, to interpreting guidance yeah. as opposed to just following orders. Sure. And, sure. Uh, and that was something I had to learn, that when I was in America, if I said do something, they would go and do it. Whereas over here, they'd look at it and go, well, he might have said that, but he didn't really mean that. What he meant was X. But um, what we're seeing at the moment, of course, in, in examples and where you, U.S. differs, obviously there's 50, 50 odd states um, all run differently by the, their governors. Where in the U.K. we've got a central government and in the U.S. they don't. Did, did those uh, issues um, impact on you as a, as a corporation, the different laws in different states? Not really. No. There, there was one, I forget, I think it was Ohio had some weird laws um, in terms of the relationship between dealer and manufacturer, but most of the others were similar. Yeah. Uh, David, just uh, see that from your 
communications that you've just taken on a robotic uh, mower line for a commercial uh, mower line. We've been talking about robotics for an awful long time. And uh, I do remember coming to uh, a ransoms meeting. Oh, it's got to be nearly 15, 20 years ago. Uh, where the vision, Ransom's vision of the golf green and the golf course of the future was outlined by a little sort of doggy kennel housing a little robot who would come out at six o'clock in the morning, not needing feed. He probably didn't have any um, appropriate uh, calendars in his hutch either. And he would, he, would, he would cut the green and disappear in and that would be it. And it was futuristic. Now, robotics are coming on slowly they're certainly gaining a significant toehold in the domestic lawnmower market now yeah. and you see them developing within the commercial market the sports market one or two golf um, rather football grounds of using robotics they certainly use them on highways and byways to cut banks and so on but where do you see yours being pitched yeah so, so as isn't robotic as such it's remote control right they are working and we're working with the, the manufacturer on a if you like a robotic add-on to it um this one really came from the electrification I, i'll just talk about this for a minute i'll come back to the more general point on robotics in a minute if i may what we found was that a lot of the big contractors were being asked by local authorities for two quotes the most inexpensive way of cutting this grass to this standard and the greenest way of cutting this grass to this standard. You know, so it's going to cost you a million pounds a year for us to cut all this grass for you using diesels and petrols and what have you, or I can do it with electrics for one and a half million or whatever it happened to be. And so they were being asked to both quotes. And we weren't being part of that conversation because we didn't have any electric commercial equipment to offer. And the biggest problem with electric Equipment obviously is battery technology. We all kind of know that, it's yeah. stating the obvious. And so, what as we were chatting through and looking at what we wanted to do, that the, one of the biggest drains on a battery is the weight that you're moving around. The weight you're moving around is directly linked to the operator because if you've got an operator sat on the machine, you've then got to have a roll bar, you've then got to have a steering wheel, you've got to have a seat, you've got to have a blah blah blah. And it adds weight, 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 which means you've got to put bigger and bigger batteries, which adds more weight, weight, weight. And so what we looked at was how do we take the operator out and then take all that other weight out? And then you can get a much better runtime out of these batteries because you're not dragging all that weight around. So what we've got really is an electric commercial mower that we happen to have taken the operator off and, and using it remotely simply to take the weight out of it. So it's not... You know, a lot of these remote control things are for very specific slopes and this, that, and the other. As really isn't it, it's a general commercial electric mower that we just happen to take the operator off of to reduce weight and increase run times. Now, down the track, we can see that you could get that to the point where it, it could robotically go up and down and, and cut some of the grass. I think there's two main issues around robotics in the commercial space. One is the legalities and risk. You know, little Johnny playing in the car, you know, in the in the in the wreck where you're cutting the grass, kicks his football over there and gets chomped up by a passing uh, robotic mower would be bad. I think we would all agree with that. And so getting that risk out of it is is significant. And then the other thing is the user interface. I think it's got to be a web, a phone based or iPad based 
easy to use user interface. And today, a lot of these things are still science project. And, and all the time it's a science project, it's not really gonna, you'll get the odd one, you know, you get the odd person who's really committed to it, loves it, you know, and is prepared. But to get general, general use, you have, you have got to have a user interface that gives you ease of use. I mean, one of the things, we, we did start having a, a robotic fairway mile when I was over in the States. And, you know, one of the big things over there is, obviously you've got massive irrigation systems on, on a, a golf course. Well, you know, you get a sprinkler break, you know, probably every other day kind of thing. And so now you get a wet pack. Well, what you need to be able to do is, okay, I'm looking at my iPad. It's got a map of the 15th fairway. I've got a wet pack. So I'm going to draw a finger. I'm going to draw a, uh, you know, a circle on the iPad round that, that uh, wet patch and the robot is now going to avoid that wet patch press go and off it goes it needs to be that simple and today it's not it's still no. more complicated than that and i think you know we're getting there um and, and you and it will no doubt follow the hierarchy that it usually does you know cars top because of the volume then agriculture and then you know, commercial ground because simply that's where the volume is. It, it, it's a very long gestation period. Um, it is. Just, just, I started my life as a demonstrator for what was four tractors then, and one of the first jobs I had was demonstrating in Spain with a radio-controlled tractor, a Ford Dexter as it was, which we would sit at a bar, uh, start this thing up. It had a three-furrow reversible plow on the back, and on a lazy Sunday afternoon, I recall in Toledo, uh, we, uh, we ran it round and there was nobody around at all until everybody came out like Pied Pipers and surrounded it and we completely lost it. And the trouble was that the heat was uh, getting at the control. So we never knew when this three fire player was going to flip over and take out half the young population of Toledo. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, Not but, ideal. but that was, you know, that, that was over half a century ago and uh, we, we're still getting there. Uh, well, that, that's great, David. Um, just going back right to the beginning, and we mentioned about uh, you making videos for the product videos and returning to your roots a bit. Um, how have those gone down with, with customers, with dealers, and so on? Yeah, it's been, um, it, it's funny how these things go. We, we were literally, it was like March the 23rd, you know, Boris announced the, the, the lockdown. Uh, we furloughed staff on the 24th, and um, phone stopped ringing and everything went dead. And uh, I said to my wife, how, how are we going to keep going? You know, we've got to keep the business going. How do we keep communicating? How do we keep talking? So we said, well, look, I'll do a virtual demo. I'll pretend that, you, you know, that there's a customer there in front of me. You film it and, uh, and we'll stick it on. The, Real know, family affair then. Yeah, it's just, it's in a paddock just, uh, you know, by a house. So, um, so we did the first one and, and I think, you know, I think they have got better. You know, I think I've done seven or eight of them now. I think I've getting better at them. But even that first one, you know, we put it out there and we had orders. We had really? people ringing up and said, I've seen the video. I want to buy one of them. Who's my nearest dealer? Really? Really? Proof and of the I pudding. It just hit a nerve that it was a way of having a demo at a time when you couldn't interact in a normal way. So we've carried on doing them. The de you know, again, I, I mentioned earlier, we had a dealer survey and, uh, recently and, and asked our dealers, what do we do well, what do we do badly? And, and universally, they love the videos. Great. Um, and what I get a lot of is requests, oh, can you do the uh, TG6495? I could do it. Oh, can you do that? And so we're gradually working our way through. I've got another one I'll do this coming weekend. Um, and so we are gradually working our way through uh, all the product range. 
if, there, if there's a swoosh in the background, incidentally, it's our bottle collection days. <laughs> it might be some of mine. Um, yeah. Th th so you're a, a pretty um, seasoned performer in terms of media because you had to do a lot when you were in the States and, and previously. So I think it, some of it comes naturally to you, although I wouldn't suggest that it's easy. Is there an advantage of having somebody like you rather than a slick corporate video which uh, highlights all the, the key points of the magazine, to, of the machine? Do people regard it more as a, um, uh, a more authentic demonstration than there would be if it was uh, surrounding music and, and, and washing choirs behind it? Well, I think so. I think people appreciate it, certainly as we did the early ones when we were in full lockdown. I think people appreciated that it was, it was a family thing, you know, it was like a amateur, it was an amateur production and we didn't try and make it perfect. We didn't send it off to somebody to, you know, edit everything out and change this and chop here and there and everywhere. It's pretty much just filmed as we did it. Uh, and I think people appreciated that. I think as well, I had quite a lot of people who I speak to myself, you know, here, they, they ring through and they go, oh, you were the guy on the, uh, you know, on the video and you start ch chatting through from there. I think people quite like the fact that the MD yeah. knows how the products work yeah. and can jump on them and use them and, and run them. And, and I, you know, I use these products in my, you know, we've got some acreage there and I use the Ozeki products, you know, pretty much every day. And so I'm, I'm genuinely familiar with the product and I know how it works and I know how to use it. Uh, and I, I think that probably comes across in, in, in what we're doing. And the indication is that more and more dealers are, are doing this on behalf of the products that they're doing. And, and I think uh, the fact that you can put a dealer's rep or dem demonstrator in and saying how it works, even though he might not be word perfect, is, is, it's got a certain authenticity to it, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, and as we look forward to the future, see, my belief is, and again, we've been working through this with our, with our dealer network, is, you know, let's say it takes you 100 steps to sell a machine. Just use a hundred because it makes all the math easy. So it takes you a hundred steps to sell a machine. I think pre-pandemic, twenty of those steps were online, and eighty of those steps were face-to-face. -face, you know, yeah. You know, interaction, one-on-one -on -one in, in, interaction. I, I think that's shifted. I, I mean, I don't think it's gone eighty-twenty the other way, but I think it's shifted to people are going to make a lot more of the cutting down, if you like, you know, there's 10 machines they're considering. I think they're gonna winnow it down to one or two online before you get to that next step of actual physical demo, have a look at it, talk to the dealer, that kind of stuff. So I think it's becoming more and more important how you relate to people in an online manner. And, and I think the videos allow people to see what we're like, not just what the machine's like, yeah. but what we as a company are. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's quite important for us. We're not yeah. a big corporate, slow moving, you know, stodgy kind of a company. We're not. We're, we're, we're quick. We're nimble. We're able to make decisions. We move, we you know, because we're little and, and, and we can do that. And I think that that's what we're trying to get across. This is the kind of company we are. These are the kind of products we sell. We're a good company to do business with. And presumably there can be a sort of clarity of message in terms of your USPs, shall we say, the, the, the grass collection and so on. You can really focus on that and immediately demonstrate what it does and how it does it. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the great things is, you know, we're not selling a, I don't know, a cup or something, which, you know, how do you show how good it is? You know, oh, it holds water. You know, yeah. we're selling somewhere where you can quite visually show this is what the grass looks like at the moment. 
Yeah. Now I've cut it. This is what the grass looks like now. Yeah. You know, and yeah. you're seeing it in real time happening. And so you can show what the machine can do in a very visually effective way. David, we covered a lot of ground, uh, put the industry to right or not. Um, just a few last minute quick fire points or questions. We've always said what affects the it's this most uh is it the economy or is it the weather uh, i think most of us agree it's the weather to which we must now add pandemic what what's your view what what's the biggest uh, threat shall i say to the industry over the coming years yeah i mean i, I weather no 99 times out of 100 i would absolutely say weather is is what influences and climate change i think will be a, a challenge for us going forward you know if we get drier you know we look at what tended to happen, which is really wet winters and really dry summers. Well, that hasn't actually happened this year. Um, you know, that, that is not a happy mix for us grass cutters, you know, really wet and then really dry. So, so normally I, I would have said that. I mean, there was no doubt that, that April, end of March, April and early May, there was an eight-week period there where actually the grass was growing very happily. Everything was good, but people weren't buying. Mm. And that was the pandemic. Yeah. And uh, so, so there was a period like that. Now, I have to say, as we come through that, June was very strong. July is incredibly strong. Um, and, and it feels like, you know, people are, are catching up a little bit on some stuff they didn't buy uh, earlier on. So, you know, normally I'd say weather, but there's no doubt that a pandemic is, <laughs> is a big deal. Uh, you know, and I think we've got to be sensible and careful as to what will happen this winter. I mean, I am concerned about what happens this winter. Um, you know, as we get into flu season and, and, and all the rest of it and how we differentiate between flu and COVID. And, sure. You know, I mean, I think shows is another huge conversation to have at some point, Chris. Yeah. You know, shows are never going to be the same again. So we have to find different methods. Uh, David, uh, in your route from demonstrator to the top of the corporate tree and back to demonstrator again, which has got a rather delicious symmetry to it, um, you must have met an awful lot of people. Um, do you have any sort of particular people that come to mind that you would use as role models if you who who have particularly told you a lot or you've respected their views either in business or outside i think as i look at everybody who i've worked for over the years um i've learned something from all of them i wouldn't say there's any one that i look at and think, oh yeah i really work you know but but all of them i took something away from um you know my first boss at charterhouse his whole thing was make sure your hair's cut make sure your shoes are shiny you know, you've got to dress right, you, you know, you represent the company and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, right from basics like that all the way through to, you know, when, the, you know, as a text run, kind of sitting at the executive leadership team and, you, you know, you're with the CEO, you're with the board of directors. I mean, these are smart people and, um, you know, you, you learn a lot from them. Um, and you realise also that they're just normal guys as well, you know. And, and, of course, Ransom's a very traditional company i mean i have to say one of the people that i got very uh, thought a lot of was guy catchpole in the early days because i had quite a lot to do with him and yeah. he was a guiding light at a time when actually ransoms were strong in agriculture and he was fighting his corner to get the turf care sector yeah. moving is there any sort of motto that you you like to live by that you have behind the loo door or anything that uh, any, any saying or thought that that guides you well, not a motto or whatever. I mean, what, I, what I've always felt is if I focus all my energies on what is best for the business, 
that my career will look after itself. I've never been one of these guys who, oh, by, you know, in three years' time, I need to be doing this. And well, I've been doing this job for a year on board now. What, you know, I've never been like that. I've always felt like I will do what I think is right for the business. Sometimes that meant taking more authority, more responsibility than actually my job title at the time might have suggested that I had. But just do what's right focus on the customer, look after the business, do what's right, and your career will look after itself. And I've had people that I've interviewed over the years who I haven't given jobs to because I felt like, actually, you're more interested in your career than you are in my company. Mm. And, and I want people who want to make this company better. And if they do that, their career is going to be absolutely great. Yeah. But if you come in here totally focused on your career, to me, that's a negative. And I think you, you've got to trust the company you're working at, that if you do a good job, you work hard, you improve that company and you take responsibility for what you do, your career will look after itself. And, and so that's what I've always stuck with. Are there any particular, I mean, life and business is full of ups and downs. Um, any particular regrets or, or, or moments that, that, that you think, oh, I wish things had been different then? I mean, I didn't leave... Textron at the time that I thought I would, that that was a tough time for me to leave after 24 mm. five years or whatever mm. it was. And having come right up through the ranks, um, that was a really hard decision for me to make to leave. And uh, I, I still think it was the right decision, but I wish it hadn't, you know. Yeah. I, I kind of wish it would have been, I always thought I'd retire from there. Yeah. And the flip side of all this, uh, your favourite or most satisfying period or moment? I guess two things would be, you know, I remember getting the phone call from uh, the CEO of Textron inviting me to be president of Jacobson. That was pretty good. I was at Saltex, actually. Saltex Peter. Really? And uh, went and sat in one of the lorries that was parked out the back so I could get a bit of privacy and called him on the cell phone and uh, chatted that through. And so that was a how long did you stay moment. in the lorry afterwards? <laughs> yeah, I did actually for five minutes just to go and come. I sure, I bet. Uh, but uh, so that that was obviously a, a highlight for me. And then I have to say this, you know, this new chapter in my life yeah. has been great fun. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, there's only 15 of us here. Um, I don't have to follow all the corporate guidelines and all that kind of thing because we're not a subsidiary. And so we can be pretty nimble and it's fun. You know, when you've got a thousand people working for you, you can't just say, you know what, I'm going to go and buy everybody's sausage and egg McMuffins. Yeah. It's here. Sometimes I do that. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, you can just do stuff. Um, and, you know, we're a pretty good, close team here. There's only, I think, two people here who didn't work for me when I was at Ransoms. Pretty much really? everybody else has joined me from, yeah. from Ransom. So I've got a lovely team of guys, very well respected, tremendous amount of industry knowledge between them. And uh, it's fun, you know. I mean, we 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 have fun. Great, and and really, that brings us back to the beginning because what goes round goes round, obviously. And uh, you're obviously enjoying it and look well on it. And uh, um, you. as you say, it's it's another chapter. And and just lastly, David, and, and many many thanks for for joining me today. Hmm. Um, if you hadn't been involved in cutting grass for a living or selling machinery, what would you like to have been? Yeah, it's a really good question. I don't know. It's funny, isn't it? Because we all come into this industry by accident, uh, almost. And um, a year ago, you might have seen an airline pilot, of course. Yeah, but you might I, not I mean, say actually, that, when no. I was a kid, when I was a kid, I always wanted to be a farmer. Really? 
Well, you're not far from it, are you? No. No. So, no. Yeah, there we are. I mean, it's a, it's a tremendous industry, Chris, isn't it? I mean, Absolutely. we've been, we've been lucky and blessed to be uh, yeah. uh, in this uh, industry. Yeah. People are nice, generally yeah. speaking. Yeah. We get on well with our customers, but we get on well with our competitors as well. And uh, it's a nice industry. As you possibly know, I'm uh, quite keen on cricket and, and so on. And it's a bit like the cricket uh, community. Whenever we get together, we reminisce, we talk about things, we bore people to death, except the people that we're talking to. Um, so it's great. Look, David, many, many thanks. It's been uh, an absolute joy to, 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 to cover all that ground. So many thanks for joining me today. Pleasure. Thanks, Chris. Well, that was a really fascinating conversation with somebody who knows the industry inside out, who's certainly been there, done it, and probably got several t-shirts to boot. In subsequent episodes of this podcast, I will be finding out from those at the sharp end how they are coping in these most unusual times. I'm Chris Biddle. Thank you for joining me again. And this is Inside Agriturf. Thank you.